You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Five years ago, a nine-magnitude earthquake and its resulting tsunami killed 20,000 people and crippled Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. Reactors spewed radiation over a wide area of the countryside, contaminating water, food and air, and more than 160,000 people were evacuated from nearby towns. What's the area like today and how has it changed Japan's attitude to nuclear power? In Germany, weekend elections in three very different states, or Länder, have seen the rise of a far-right populist party, Alternative für Deutschland, now represented in eight of 16 state capitals. The election is being read as a major setback for Angela Merkel and her liberal approach to migration. But it's not quite that simple. And then there's a literary whodunit for your delectation, the mystery surrounding the real identity of successful Man Booker-nominated Neapolitan author Elena Ferrante. Is she in fact a history professor, as a fellow academic claims? I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. I'm joined by David McNeil in Tokyo, Derek Scally in Berlin, and Rosie Scammell in Rome. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. David McNeil, you recently returned from Fukushima, where you were reporting on the region five years after the disastrous tsunami. Some 10% of people are still living in temporary houses across the region. Most have settled outside their hometowns and begun new lives. And you recently wrote about the mayor of a nearby city of Minamisoma, uh, which is attempting to rebuild and bring back residents. Well, the town is, um, I always think of it because I've been going up there now for five years as a bit like Galway in the sense that it has roughly the same population. It's about 70,000 people. And it's a coastal town, uh, or a city actually, because it's over 50,000 people. And uh, the first time I went up there, the population had fallen to about 9,000. So um, it's actually north of the power plant. It's about uh, 15 miles north of the Daiichi power plant. And uh, at the time, we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know where the radiation from the power plant was going. But now we know that most of it went north, northwest. I mean, Amisoma, which uh, was uh, the closest city to the power plant suffered uh, from the fallout. And uh, because there was so little information about what was going on, because there was essentially a blackout from TEPCO, and because the government was issuing these kind of bland reassurances, most of the people in Minamisoma who could fled, they just upped and left. Uh, and uh, when I arrived, uh, the mayor was furious, not only at TEPCO, the operator of the Daiichi power plant, but also with the media, the Japanese media, because most of the, the big newspapers and big TV companies had fled from Minamisoma uh, and stopped reporting on what was happening. And um, at the same time as the domestic media was sort of saying to everybody, uh, keep calm, there's no problem. You know, the reporters were sort of running away. So he was, he was furious about that. And really the story of Minamisoma, that city, for the last five years is the attempt to come back from that disaster and to get some semblance of normality. And that's really what the article was about, to sort of see where is where is the mayor and where is the city five years after all this crisis erupted. This has been at a huge cost. You, I think you, you quote a figure of 300 to 400 million for this city alone. And and uh, they're working their way through uh, house rebuilding houses. Um, uh, and 
23,000 uh, houses are involved and they're only about halfway through. Is that right? Yeah. So what, what they have decided to do uh, is to decontaminate all of the areas that were uh, contaminated by the by the fallout from the nuclear power plant five years ago. Basically, it all happened. Most of the contamination happened in the space of a night or two nights, March 14th, March 13th, 14th uh, of 2011. And um, of course, people will argue and people do argue. And there's actually a comment on the Irish Times article that the uh, what we have said about radiation and the reporting about the radiation has exaggerated its impact and that really people are under no danger at all. And that's a debate that, you know, what I tried to do is sort of leave to one side, if you like, and just look at the decisions that have been made. And the decision has been to contaminate that entire town and much of the area around the power plant house by house. So yes, when you go to Minamisoma, there are decontamination crews uh, at each uh, house and they have worked through by uh, sort of wiping down all the surface areas by scraping up five centimeters of earth from the gardens, from farms, bagging it, putting it into these black plastic bags, and then moving them to dumps. And the sort of mildly radioactive uh, waste will sit there for years to come. And it's an enormously expensive project, as you said. I mean, the mayor told us, yes, that the, the cost alone of his city of which uh, is only ha it's only half finished, is three to $400 million. And the, the eventual cost for decontaminating the whole of uh, the decontaminated parts, or sorry, I should say the contaminated part of Fukushima will be billions and billions of dollars. And we're talking about uh, radi radiation levels in the, the majority of the prefecture uh, at lower than, than European cities. Well, in yeah, I mean, in a lot of in, in certainly in his case, in the city uh, that we're talking about, Minami Soma, in the mayor's case, what what they have done is they have put radioactive uh, devices or devices, I should say, to measure radioactivity uh, in schools and outside the city office and so on. And and the reading there when we were there was was about 0.2, 0.3 microsieverts, which is indeed lower than some uh, European cities. But once you get uh, closer to the power plant, once you drive down the main road from Minamisoma to the power plant, uh, radiation gets uh, quite high, uh, uh, you know, within two or three miles of the power plant. And um, our, I mean, the issue really is, you know, if you were a parent uh, and you had young children, would you want your, would you want them to live around there? And for better or for worse, the decision that a lot of parents have made is to stay away with their children. So as we said in the article, the local kindergartens, for example, are, are half full. And the population of the city itself has still recovered, still not recovered to where it was. It's about 57, 58,000 people and have returned. In terms of, of that recovery, is it people returning to the city or new people coming to the city? Well, it, it's it's the, the people who used to live there um, who have come back, that, that accounts for about two-thirds of the original population. And then there's this, the, the population is swollen by about six or 7,000 by this, these um, uh, workers who have flooded into Fukushima, tens of thousands of workers, to do this decontamination work and to work on site at the Daiichi power plant, of course, there's about seven or 8,000 people there. Uh, working on, on trying to decommission that power plant. So the city is swollen, like any city... Hello? We've lost him.
We've lost. Hello? 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 Can you still hear me? I, I can now. Yeah, there was a break there. Um, oh, was there? Sorry. Uh, no, don't don't worry. We'll, we'll just continue. We're, we're, I'll ask you another question. Tell us, David, uh, more generally speaking, how was the anniversary marked in, in Japan? Well, it, it was a somber affair, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I think, well, first of all, of course, the emperor and the prime minister uh, gave speeches in which they noted the achievements that had been made, but also what's ahead. And the emperor in particular noted that... Um, in, in many cases, uh, people who, who used to live in Fukushima have been displaced and many of them are old and they feel that they've been forgotten, left behind uh, as the disaster moves on. And uh, of course, around the city, around Tokyo, um, people stopped and observed a moment of silence uh, when the anniversary, when the exact moment of the, that the earthquake struck uh, uh took place and the train stopped and so on. Uh, it was a somber affair and I think that what what made it so more somber, I guess, is the sense that um, there's so much work still to be done. As you said, uh, hundreds of tens of thousands, I should say, of people are still displaced from the uh, from the tsunami in particular and also from the, from the disaster, uh, from the nuclear disaster. Many of the um, decisions about whether to rebuild communities that were beside the sea uh, are still kind of up in the air because these communities have to decide really whether to move back from the sea, whether to build up inland. And uh, the whole coastline is being ringed with these uh, enormous seawalls and an enormous cost as well, I should say, of about uh, $8 billion. Uh, and those seawalls themselves are quite controversial. So all of that, uh, all of those uh, uh, topics were up for discussion on the anniversary. And of course, the plant itself, uh, you were saying that there's about six or 7,000 people uh, still working on it. And it's probably going to take another few decades to, to, put, to, to clean up and to decommission entirely. Isn't that right? Well, at least, you know, I mean, the, the, the more optimistic assessments are that it will take a couple of decades. The government's own uh, timeline is that it will take until the 2040s. I, I've been reading articles on the anniversary that suggests it could take uh, up to a century. I mean, if you look at the the sort of technical problems of what's going on, um, it, uh, what they're trying to do is to, and what they have succeeded in doing, is keeping that nuclear fuel in the three melted-down reactors from discharging radiation. Uh, and that's they're doing that by water. But what they haven't yet even started to do is to remove the nuclear fuel. And this, they, uh, this involves... Swimming robots, I believe, that um, go down into the water to, to dig up the rods. Is that that uh, sounds a very peculiar procedure. Well, it is, I mean, it is. It involves technology, including robots, that nobody has invented yet. And the sort of top brains, the top engineering brains in Japan, are trying to uh, wrap their heads around this. And one of the big issues is that the uh, radioactive fuel is, is so toxic that humans can't go near it and it knocks out machinery and um, uh, they have to develop robots that can get close to it uh, and that indeed involves things like swimming through water, through highly radioactive water so that they can first of all see where it is uh, and then begin to devise technologies to try and take it out uh, and that's not even going to begin. I mean even the spent fuel rods inside those three reactors are not even going to start being extracted 
for another couple of years, possibly by 2020. And then they have to get this spent fuel out, which is melted into the bottom of their container vessel. So this is a, it's a huge engineering challenge. And, and I think, you know, what I've, what I've started to write really is that the radiation, while, while horrific, you know, is a distraction in a sense from the cost, because the cost of this is, is just enormous. And has there been any change nationally in in the attitude to nuclear power? I gather the government, in its latest energy plan, talks about meeting 20, 23% of the nation's energy needs with nuclear power. Uh, is that attitude of confidence in the government reflected in the public? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, polls consistently show, post-Fukushima polls consistently show a majority of people opposed to nuclear power or... Uh, uh, very um, consistent about saying they want nuclear power to be replaced, even if it's not in the immediate term. Uh, so I would say it, it's fair to say that that LDP, that plan by the LDP government to uh, to uh, bring back nuclear power to that extent, to the extent of 20 to 23 percent of the country's electricity, is considered controversial, is considered unpopular. Um, more to the point, I think, is that it's probably not possible because a lot of these reactors now are aging, uh, first of all, uh, and despite the fact that they have undergone sort of uh, uh, very, very stringent safety checks post-Fukushima, every one of them is the subject of a legal challenge, um, and that's going to slow things up considerably. I mean, we had, for example, last week, very unexpectedly, a local court uh, shut down the Takahama power plant, uh, uh, which had only just started up again. So at the moment, there's only one power plant in Japan, the Sendai plant, running. And if you sort of look ahead, it's very, very unlikely. Most of the experts I talk to say it's very unlikely that the government will achieve this plan of 20 to 22% or 23% of electricity from nuclear power. Thank you very much, David. What is perhaps surprising in Germany is that the backlash against Merkel and her migration policy has taken so long in coming. But, so the commentators say, it has come and she's in trouble, not least ahead of her general election next year. Derek Scali, these were three very different lander-holding elections and sending back not altogether clear messages. This is the thing, this is the, the joy and the pain of uh, trying to understand German politics. These state elections in normal times are always about local issues uh, for which the local governments have competences, so schools, education, roads, that type of thing. But of course, these are not normal times in Germany. We've got one million uh, refugees. So many people decided that because the states are the ones who are actually dealing with the consequence of the refugee crisis and putting up, uh, finding homes for these uh, hundreds of thousands of people, that uh, this was going to be the issue that decided the election. And yes, it did decide the election in, in some respects, or at least it dominated the election. Um, but people here are saying, well, it's, it, these were still state elections. Um, these are state, federal states that might be creaking under the refugee crisis, but they actually have, the governments have no competence to influence directly Merkel's policy and voters aren't stupid. So it's, it was still the complex issue of a uh, mixture of sort of state and uh, national issues that influenced this. Uh, but of course, these are different states, very different histories, very different perspectives, and they all had their different takes on, on the migration crisis, Merkel and the other issues. Well, if we take uh, Saxony-Anhalt, Saxony which is a former Republic of East Germany, it's very run down. Um, it, it has surprisingly small uh, migrant population, but that was the strongest in terms of the rise uh, for the Alternative for Deutschland. 
Uh, the party that was really suffering there was not the CDU of Merkel, but the SPD. Exactly. I mean, the SPD has been fighting a battle ever since the Greens started peeling away voters in the 80s. And then, of course, we had the rise of the left party a decade ago, including many disillusioned um, social democrats. So the SPD has been losing for a very long time, and this was just yet another humiliation for them. And the AFD, uh, while many people call it a, a far-right party or a right-wing populist party, they're peeling away support from left of centre, including from the SPD. So um, this was a, not a, a bad result for Merkel in Saxony-Anhalt. Her party finished top. They will lead any new coalition that emerges. And it was uh, the SPD that suffered. And it seems that in the states where uh, there is the smallest refugee influx, um, you somehow get the strongest resistance to, to her migration policies. Oh, listen, it's always the way. I mean, where is xenophobia the greatest where there are no foreigners? Uh, there's also no jobs in Saxony-Anhalt. So if you, were, if you were an asylum seeker, you really wouldn't want to be in Saxony-Anhalt anyway. Um, so, of course, these are people who grew up in East Germany. And they grew up, of all of the parts of East Germany, this was the most tucked away from the world, Saxony-Anhalt and Saxony. And it's not for nothing that you're seeing the rise of, of Pegida, the anti-Islamist group, and now the AFD. So these are people, I mean, Saxony-Anhalt has less than 3% of the entire 1 million that came. Yet uh, the AFD struck gold here by talking about a flood of asylum seekers because for people with absolutely, uh, completely white uh, faces, a few black faces or a few darker faces, it's, it's far more striking and, uh, and far more worrying for these people who've led a rather protected existence. And that is um, why they've, uh, the AFD has been able to pick up 24% uh, of the vote. And Baden-Württemberg down in the south, uh, traditionally a CDU heartland, uh, an industrial state, uh, wealthy. Uh, the, this was where the CDU had its worst result. But interestingly, the candidate that they put up was explicitly opposed to Merkel. Indeed. Well, he wasn't explicitly. This is another sort of oversimplification. There were three CDU people up for uh, re-election. And um, the, the guy in Baden-Württemberg was sort of, he was, he was, he, he stuck, went on a distance to Merkel, but there was another candidate um, we'll talk about later who was far more strident. The guy in Baden-Württemberg, he really couldn't decide whether he was in favour or against Merkel. But the reason the AFD did so well down there and, and Merkel's CDU lost around 10%, 10 percentage points was um, the, the AFD down there was sort of a more tweedy, conservative, respectable party. So the same party that was talking about an asylum flood in the East was talking here about, well, of course, these people want to improve their lives, and it's all about how do we steer this responsibly for Germany and for the, these people coming to us. So they pitched themselves differently, a more respectable, more even economic liberal approach, um, rather than ringing the alarm bell, as in the East. So that's what struck a chord with conservative voters uh, down in Baden-Württemberg. And of course, Conservative voters also abandoned the CDU for the Greens. The Greens have sort of cornered the market now in sort of a, a pragmatic um, eco-conservatism. And this is what um, seems to be working in this part of the country, the most unlikely part of the country, because this is where all the luxury cars come from. But somehow a uh, luxury car and voting green no longer seem to be a contradiction in terms. And what about the third state, the Rhineland-Palatinate? This is wine country, isn't it? This is wine country. It's also conservative, but this is where um, Julia Gluckner, sort of the next generation of CDU leaders, she was leading 
the campaign for a very long time. And then she got cold feet halfway through the campaign and started railing against Angela Merkel's migration policy, said we need a plan A2. She didn't dare call it a plan B, but she wanted, she was trying to steal some of the AFD's clothes. We need to close borders. We need to talk about contingents. And voters punished her for that because um, either there's two competing analysis, either voters thought um, well, what she's proposing, closing borders, isn't realistic, or uh, they weren't rewarding her what they saw as disloyalty towards Merkel because um, Mrs. Gluckner was calling for something over which she has absolutely no competence and people aren't stupid. So she was just trying to, she says she was uh, trying to prevent the AFD vote getting any bigger, but most people say uh, she was punished for disloyalty towards Merkel. So that's the paradox of this election, that um, Merkel hasn't actually necessarily suffered any uh, damage to her authority in Berlin because people, these rebels who tried to rise up against her um, seem to have been slapped down. So the notion of agitating against Merkel doesn't seem to be uh, rewarded by voters. So uh, things will probably be calm for Merkel in, in the next while. Now, she, she retains her position of personal strength uh, and uh, in the party and in terms in in the public uh, uh, polling. Um, but within the CDU family, uh, the CSU is her Bavarian uh, allies are still very critical and they're always a thorn in her side. Exactly. But again, it's it's more like a, a thorn in a lion's paw um, and uh, Merkel is the lion and they're the thorn. Um, uh, it's whether or not uh, it's a real problem. I mean, they're, they're used to railing. The, the CSU is worried because the AFD is uh, doing the politics that they like to do, which is um, populist and uh, hard right. And uh, Merkel's CDU has been drifting towards the center. Um, so they've already lost the right. But uh, the CSU has never, hasn't quite abandoned that territory. And now they see this pretender to the throne. So their, um, their, their agitation against Merkel is based on uh, an idea that they feel a, a threat to their terrain. And also, they're also on the front lines. And um, once the weather warms up again, and um, the Balkan route ends in Bavaria. And while people are distributed through Germany, uh, Bavaria is the people who feel, feel that any time the numbers rise, Bavaria will feel it first. Well, the CDU and Merkel insist that they're staying the course on, on the migration issue. Does that very much depend on whether this week's CEU uh, states endorsed the deal with Turkey agreed last week on refugees, this idea of one-for-one -one swaps? Well, I think we're, we journalists were, were tend to say this is the make or break meeting. We've had several make or break meetings, a bit like in the euro crisis. So um, this is actually taking the pressure off. The next state elections aren't until the autumn. So that gives her six months, six months to bring EU leaders on side or knock some heads together, six months to get Turkey doing what it's promised to do and Greece doing what it's promised to do to uh, register uh, arrivals at the borders. So, I mean, Merkel's message is keep calm and carry on. I believe this is the only... I've, she says she's thought it through to the end and she's, she's working back from that, that the only way to do this is to share the burden. And um, she sees no reason to change the course. I mean, the CDU may rail and the CSU may rage, but um, to date, no one has, with any uh, credibility, has emerged that could challenge her. And uh, these elections haven't changed that. And, and certainly in, in terms of the SPD as an opposition, that they haven't, they haven't strengthened them either. Oh, no, the SPD has been in an identity crisis since the economic and social reforms of a decade ago. They really don't know whether they're fish or fowl. And um, the migration issue is Merkel's issue. Some people I've said, I've spoken to have said they should, they should make uh, in the integration issue, stage two of this uh, crisis, an SPD issue and uh, unite that with sort of a notion of social justice. 
they're trying to the the SPD is trying to do that, but the problem is they have a leader who is sort of he changes his mind and he has a new idea every week. So the party is a bit exhausted by that, but they definitely are suffering a, an identity crisis, and they've already written off the, the 2017 election. So. Um, whether inside or outside her party, Merkel still see, seems showing remarkable strength for somebody uh, halfway through her third term. Thank you very much, Derek. You're listening to the Irish Times. And so to Rome and a literary mystery akin to the international debate two decades ago about the authorship of the Clinton campaign novel Primary Colours, eventually attributed to journalist Joe Klein. The mystery surrounds the pseudonymous Elena Ferrante, author of, among other things, a Neapolitan quartet of books whose final element, The Story of the Lost Child, has been shortlisted for the International Man Booker Awards for works in translation in English. Rosie Scannell, first, are you actually Rosie Scannell? <laughs> yes, yes, definitely <laughs> Rosie Scannell. Unfortunately, no, no pseudonym. No yeah. pseudonym there. And can you describe Elena Ferrante's work and, and why she's so successful? Yes, yeah, so she writes, she sort of started writing in 1992. That's when her first novel was published in Italian. But it wasn't until a few years ago that they started coming out in English, which is when she became so famous globally. And the sort of the, the works, her most famous works, I suppose, are those, the four Neapolitan novels, which tell the story of a very close friendship between two girls who grew up in Naples in quite a poor neighbourhood and then go on and it sort of follows their their lives in Italy. And of course, it's an incredibly fascinating period in Italian history, you know, there's the 1960s and onwards right up to the modern day. Um, so it's not only this sort of close relationship, this cl- close friendship, which many readers can identify with, um, but it's also looking at the history of Italy in these incredibly fascinating cities and times in history. And then along comes Marco Santagata, a writer and expert on Dante, who writes in Corriere della Sera that Naples academic Marcella Marmo is actually Elena Ferrante. He claims he's carried out a forensic analysis of the evidence. What's his argument? So Marco Santagata looked at one of the novels which is set in Pisa in the 1960s, um, where he also studied in the 1960s and has worked since. And he kind of went through various elements in the book and said that this meant it only could have been written by someone who went to a specific academic institution in very specific years. And so he he went through the sort of yearbooks and found a woman who was born in Naples, which is essential, really. It's it's even though we don't know who Elena Ferrante is, generally it's, it's believed that she is from Naples, given everything she knows about the city. And looking at the specific Pisa novel, um, he came up with things such as a coffee bar where students always went during that period um, and a party that only the students would have known of. And also street names, which he noticed changed actually after this person would have studied at the university. And also references to quite important events such as a huge, huge flooding in Tuscany, which happened at the end of the 60s, which he believed showed that whoever wrote this novel must have been at the university in the 60s, but earlier on. Um, and so he came up with this name of Marcello Marmo, who has since denied, of course, being Elena Ferrante because, well, she, she says that she's just a, an academic in, in Naples. She happened to have gone to Pisa to study in the 60s, but she completely denies that she's this incredibly famous novelist. It's, it's rather suspect and thin methodology on his part. And... Uh, and he's selling his own book, presumably. Uh, is, he, is this the first attempt to unmask Elena Ferrante? 
No, I mean, this is a sort of literary game that's been going on ever since she rose to fame. Um, and in the sort of the modern day, when we have such incredibly well-known authors who are on social media and chatting to their public and giving book tours, it's really captured the the public imagination that we have someone who's so successful and no one really knows who she is. So theories that have been put forward before include the fact that it may be one of her publishers. Um, there's sort of a couple of people that publish her. Um, they've also denied being El Neferante. Um, so yeah, it's sort of something that that comes up. People often come up with their own theory, but she's very the author is very careful in making sure that that she's not identified. Um, she's sort of been interviewed by various newspapers, but always via email and always through her publishers. Um, so she will never she will never meet a journalist. She will never sort of describe um, where she is or or that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's probably one of Italy's best kept secrets at the moment. And what would you say about Marcella Marmo's own denial? Is it is it plausible? Um, it is plausible. I think both the theory that suggested that she was Elna Ferranti is plausible, as is her denial. Um, it's something that without without ever knowing who Elna Ferranti is, people always wonder and people always look for people who match who they believe it to be. Um, and they believe it to be a woman who grew up in the period in which the novels were set, who who must have spent time in Pisa, who who as a child was in Naples. And yes, Marcella Marva matches that, but she says that it's certainly not her. And her books now are likely to uh, feature much more widely on people's holiday reading. Would you take it on a beach with you and, and, and read it? Yes, um, they're certainly very readable in English and they've been hugely successful. I think they've also not only sort of been a good holiday read, they've also made people rethink their holiday plans in the sense that Naples has never really been much on the sort of the tourist beat in Italy. People tend to go to Rome and Venice and, and Florence. Um, but now there's certainly much more attention on um, on sort of trips to Naples and following the literary trail, which was portrayed in My Brilliant Friend, the first of the the four novels and i understand that last one anyway the story of the last child you'd want to have a reasonably long holiday uh, to get through it yes although having said that they are very they are sort of turn, page turners That's so great. um yeah a, sort of a few days on the beach would certainly do it thank you very much rosie thanks to david mcneil derek scully and rosie scammell to our producer declan conlon and rob o'sullivan on sound <laughs>